0: Hello and welcome to Back to Britpop, it's me Chris, a bit of a different episode for you this week as on this occasion I was delighted to be joined by award winning author Daniel Rachel. Daniel joined me to talk about Don't Look Back in Anger, his amazing book about the 90s which has just recently been re-released in paperback. Daniel talks about the inspiration behind the book, his career as an author so far, being a musician and living with members of Ocean Colour Scene. If you haven't already got the book I would highly recommend it, it's fantastic and really in-depth, it goes into sort of every aspect and nuance of the 90s, from Britpop to the art scene, the politics, and most importantly, the concept of Cool Britannia. I'll be back at the end of the interview to talk about how you can support the podcast, but here's Daniel. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Daniel, Rachel, how are you?
1: I'm doing fine.
0: One of the main things I do when speaking to guests on the podcast is ask the dreaded questions about lockdown. (laughs) <laughs> mm. But how, how have you been finding things uh, in isolation and lockdown? Have you been keeping yourself busy with reconnecting with things that uh, you haven't been able to do?
1: I mean, the only thing that I'm, lockdown is, has really affected me is in the evenings when I'm desperate to kind of uh, have some culture, you know, to go to a gig or uh, see some comedy or, mm. you know, or in the daytime go to an exhibition or something. That That's what's lacking. Mm. But in terms of just the everyday um, I mean, I'm full on really. I, I write books, and um, and and I have been. And that's what I've been doing. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm fortunate to have, madly enough, four books coming out in 2021. Two of them are uh, paperback, so therefore reissues, if you like, and two new. and And I've been involved um, in um, some two tone stuff as well. Doing an exhibition in Coventry and helping with the selector curating a re release of theirs. So I've been full-on it's been yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. it's the the reward of writing in the days to go out and go and play f- football or or go as i say go and go to a gig and jump around and just go yeah. a bit bunky, you know? so that that's that's the that's the the odds that side of it but yeah
0: what's your favorite kind of gig to go to is there a local venue that you love <laughs>
1: Well, I'm in London, so I'll go anywhere. <laughs> I don't mind. I tend to go the smaller, the better. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've always, I've always preferred intimate gigs. I mean, my favourite gig ever used to be the Birmingham Odeon. Uh, my ambition in life was to play the Birmingham Odeon, and it never happened. And it became, it became a uh, a cinema, uh, <laughs> much to my dismay. I used to sneak on the back. I used to sneak around the back when I was a kid and meet bands and. Steel set lists and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. I remember meeting Suggs from Madness. I was only about 14 or 15 and snuck around after the gig. And I remember saying to him, oddly enough, kind of, uh, oddly a strange question for a kid, but I said, what was the gig like for you? Uh, he said, well, it was Birmingham, wasn't it? And I didn't know what he meant. And then when I was in a band and played Birmingham, I soon sure knew what he meant because... Us brubbies give nothing. (laughs) (laughs) You know know what I mean? It's like a dead audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's the thing, you know, every city or town has got its, uh, a different kind of an audience. Mm. And it's a, it's a, it's a strange thing that, that an audience, as much as an audience goes to a gig, you're thinking that the band determine the night. The audience is half of that, is half of that. Mm-hmm. And so if you, they can determine a gig, I suppose the, the, the modern example of that really is Glastonbury, where you really see how an audience can take over. That moment at, uh, when Blur played and did Tender and, and it, you know, you saw Damon welling up when, mm-hmm. the, when the audience took on the song. That was quite extraordinary. And, and they had, the, Blur had the nice to give over the time to the audience, and you and all of I've stood in that crowd so many times, and all the crowd wants to know at Glastonbury is that the, the band appreciate you're at Glastonbury and have a sense of the occasion. Paul McCartney messed up big time, didn't he? Mm. I remember being there for that, and he didn't get it. And, you know, he was always going, Hello, Glastonbury. <laughs> and it doesn't, he didn't, I love Paul McCartney, but it didn't work. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. But, I, but I should have been there. Was it this year or last year when he was meant to headline? That would have been fab. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, you loved it. Was there any artists or music in the family or, or particular um, musical heroes that you had very young?
1: Well, the Beatles was everything to me from, from when I was eight years old. Uh, music was, is my life. The biggest single thing that happened to me was meeting uh, Simon Fowler in 1985, 3rd of October. He came around my house and played on the acoustic guitar to me Waiting for the Man by Lou Reed and Twist and Shout and, and I thought, wow, John Lennon's in the room. This mm. is incredible. And then for about the next 15 years, I spent virtually every day of my life with Simon and 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 and, and we went on a, a, a kind of um a, a parallel musical adventure, I guess. But for those first couple of years in the in the mid-80s, it was in um that was a very intense period of Bringing together all my loves of music, mm. which had um, had been by with friends and buying records, and centering it into being in a band, and uh, and there's, there's a, a massive transition happened between being a music fan to being a musician, and it it cha- it, it, uh, it allowed an outpouring of love for music to, to, to flourish.
0: And so, when it when it came to writing about it, was that quite an easy transition for you to make? And your sort of writing style, how did that develop? Was there kind of like any other writers that you were you were um, influenced by?
1: Not at all. I had. I don't have any. I don't have any training or concept or knowledge of how to write songs I would, uh, out songs. <laughs> People might say that, but, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, as history's proven. But uh no, of writing books. I mean, uh, uh I was I was lousy at school, I was the most bottom set for for virtually everything. Mm. Um I'd written lyrics all my life, which were, you know, I struggled to be able to write lyrics that, that told a straightforward plotted story in the way that Paul McCartney could do for example you know to write a lyric like Emily Rigby is very very difficult a lyric that makes sense line by line by line I I I mine was shrouded in you know as lots of writers are just personal blindness um and so when uh, I decided to write my first book "Island Noises it, it, I, I had no idea what to do I, and, and as was my want at the time I just decided to shout very very loudly off any rooftop available I'm going to become an author and <laughs> just see what happened and because I, was, I declared it to so many people mm-hmm. the idea mm-hmm. of failing would have been appalling so I just <laughs> I knew I had to succeed and unfortunately that it, it went it went very well. But my instinct was to want to explore songwriting with people who could do it far better than I could. And so that's exactly what I did with Island Noises and just go and talk hmm. with, you know, you know, Noel or Damon or Jarvis or and then back to you know Jimmy Page or Brian Ferry or up to Laura Marling, you know, across 50 years of British songwriting, just go and talk about songwriting because I understood what it meant to try and be a songwriter i didn't understand what it meant to be successful and then and then the, each book i've done has been a process of being fascinated by a subject area and, and, and feeling it's it worthy of of a book and then just trying to find the way to best do it um and as 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 everybody does in life nobody 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 has a plan and nobody knows how to fit in and and you, you hear often people saying, I was just working it out as I went along. Well, we all are, and everybody is. Yeah. And and that will never change. We never, We never knew when we were kids. We never knew when we became adults. We never knew when we got into relationships. You never knew how to do it. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. could read about it or hear about it. But the only way to do it is to do it. And the only way to find out about it is by is by finding out about it through your action. And so that's what I'm just on a journey of trying to do it. And, you know, the idea that Wars Come Dumbly Down, one of, the, one of the best music book of the year is just incredible. Um, and then, so Don't Go Back in Anger, the book about the nineties, I guess is it's, it's the only book out, the ones of the handful have done, which worked on the same model. Uh, it followed on from Wars Come Dumbly Down because it was sequentially the next decade it's just a, a journey of discovery
0: yeah so with have we don't look back in anger which is phenomenal i mean i i've been reading it and absorbing it for the last few days and um i mean it's it's so revealing and there's there's so much it's packed but how do you start the process of analyzing and and, and taking apart a decade the way that you have and who to choose what aspects of that decade to, to, to focus on
1: no, it's, good. It's, it's, it's a good question because I need an idea, and the idea was: uh, what is cool Britannia? What was mm. what? What was the rise of it, and what was the fall of it? So then, I had to. Cons- I didn't under- I didn't really understand what cool Britannia was actually, and as something distinct from Britpop, and how the two intermingled. So then, I had to devise a story, a narrative arc a journey that took, you have to take, a, as with any story, you have to take the reader on a journey. That then became my quest to understand that story arc. So that's a lot of research. I read books in all the areas of the 90s and films and music, whether it's doing music, whether it's doing mm-hmm. politics, uh, literature, film, football, uh, comedy. There were so many avenues of culture that made up what became labelled as Cool Britannia. And I needed to understand, firstly from, you know, there was obviously my own instinctive understanding from experiencing it firsthand, but then I needed a greater depth of that to... to so once I, so I plotted a story, basically, once I plotted the story, what's important to me is to find all the architects of those genres and the areas of life and to then invite them all to and talk and to want to talk to them. And, and that's what I set out to do. And I spoke to 68 people, and hopefully people will agree I've pretty much captured the, the the major people of the era. So if it's art, you know, I was meeting Tracy Emin and Sarah Lucas, and if it's um, comedy with people like David Baddiel and uh, Steve Coogan, politics was John Major, Alistair Campbell, uh, Tony Blair, music was uh, Brett Anderson, and. And Jarvis Cocker and Noel Gallagher and Damon et cetera, and so all the main people, and then there's a lot of people around behind the scenes and who don't get the major credit. I then went and spoke to them, spent sometimes hours with each of those persons. Some, like Tony Blair, went and met him three different on three different occasions, and very long, in-depth conversations. And 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 I find that joyous, you know, mm. the idea mm. of spending time and the privilege of spending time with anybody. And, and them allowing you to kind of penetrate their minds. I love that. You know, and sometimes it was easy to get people involved, sometimes it wasn't. I mean, Jarvis wouldn't do it at first because I told, I told him the book was called, called Britannia, and he went, oh, what a horrible title. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. I, was, I was camping. This is really bonkers, but I was camping in Europe and uh, with my family and uh, we'd never done this before but we decided to take a day trip away from the campsite to a city we are in Italy we'd never done that and we went to Rome and we were all in our camping gear so we look really grubby and dodgy clothes and dirty fingernails and I, I've got some uh, three daughters and I as a laugh I said let's go into Gucci let's go and find it because you were, they didn't really get the concept of what this shot was and uh, I said it's like the Really high-end fashion things are going to be absurdly expensive, and of course we went in, and it was, and we're getting all these dirty looks from the Italian because we just looked dreadful, and there's no way we could afford it. And then we came out, and I literally walked straight into Jarvis Cocker. <laughs> it's like oh wow! Really <laughs> funny. And you know? I was going to say, "You won't do my book, will you?" <laughs> oh wow! And just, oh. <laughs> and he said, "It's just your title. It's just horrible." He said. You know, it makes my blood curdle the idea of Cool Britannia. Yes. And so we had a laugh about it. And and he said, you know, of course I'll do your book, but you know, please don't call it that. And 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 that's when I really understood that that most people who were who were labeled as being part of Cool Britannia hated that labeling and that definition, and rightfully so. Mm. And what I like doing in in books is showing the the drama of differing voices because that's life
0: were you surprised at how you know, candid and, and, and open some of you some of the people you spoke to were because it is a re- it is very revealing and no one really does pull any punches do they
1: <laughs> it's, it's nice of you to observe that i i i that i i'm not sure i have actually noted that myself revealing and candid gosh uh i've often been criticized in life for for, for asking too many questions <laughs> i just think i'm interested in people
0: well i think people open up and i think that's that's something i've noticed with with the podcast as well and speaking to people that you know were i, were, I was big fans of and, and not expecting potentially to get the answers that i was getting and how obviously the passing of time and everyone looking back and the the, the nostalgia if you like of it all um Uh, people have grown up with themselves and they've they've matured and they're they're just a bit more approachable and uh and warmer and i think Mm. that comes across in the book as well as people are going did i say that i really did say that Oh, God, I can't believe I said that. I was probably on drugs. You know, it's the kind of, it's the outpouring. and the, the, the Yeah, Noel the- says that, doesn't
1: he? He, he, he can't <laughs> believe it. I've, never, I know I've got some illustrations that have come to mind now. Noel says that about the Brits, doesn't he? When I, yeah. I asked him about, when he was going, Tony Blair's the man. <laughs> and I said, do you remember what you said? And he goes, I've got no idea. So, I, so I, I read out his quote and he's like, did I say that? Wow. I was probably on E. Speak to Alan McGee. No, always off his head, you he know he's talking about. I think one of the things that had always bugged me was when I saw that Britpop film in the early 2000s and they asked he asked uh, Damon about what kicked off all the Britpop wars and Damon said, I'm not answering that. Do you remember that scene when yeah, he sat at yeah. the table with his banjo and a glass of wine? <laughs> and, uh, um, and I thought, well, I'm going to ask him then. Why? What is it that you won't say? Because I just thought it's not, that's not the complete story unless he tells you the complete answer. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so I just asked him straight. And, uh, and I remember he just very slowly, slowly bowed his head and I heard him mumble under his breath. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and then he looked up and he answered me and he told me, that, he told me, you know, what he says in the book. And then, and then I I uh, I I, I, I speak to um, Rufus Norris from the National Theatre, and this was a, few, a couple of uh, maybe a year later, and, he, and and it's for some reason it came up about the book, and he said, you know what, I was with Damon after you had been with him, but I didn't realise it was you that has been it was you that had been with him. He said, I wish I'd known because Damon was saying to me. I've just been telling Daniel about this uh, this guy I met called Daniel about um, about what it what it was all about between me and Liam, and and, uh, and and Rufus said to Damon, "Why why did you tell him?" And he said, "Well, because he asked me. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he
0: needed." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think um, the, the book is full of. Um, it's, it's not necessarily. Uh, are completely anecdotal but there's so many elements you can pull out and go that where, where things are almost complete and the stories are told in a way that kind of pennies are dropping all the time with all the <laughs> all the all the, all the, all the uh, contributions that you've had was it difficult sometimes with some of the people that you were speaking to to uh, to get to the bottom of some of the, the things things you were, you're were asking or were you getting openness from everybody
1: it felt pretty open to be honest when i invited tony blair to be involved I, I didn't think for one minute he would because I thought it'd be really shallow for him to be talking about pop music and yeah. art and comedy and uh, and so originally he said to him that the, this was a celebration of of how he was regarded in the 90s and it wasn't about what happened in his second and third terms of office. Once I got quite involved in the book and I had to go back to him and and say, Look, lots of people are judging their memories of you, not by the truth of how he was regarded as a uh, opposition leader and as and as the prime minister, 97, 2001, but by what happened after 9-11. And I said, can I may I come and ask you about, you know, I need to talk to you about that. And I was surprised he agreed to. I don't think I know. I didn't ask him if I could do that. Sorry, I just I just explained that to him when I was with him, and I th- and I remember there was this kind of silence for about ten seconds, and he kind of looked at me, and I thought, mm, what's going to happen now? It's like a security going to kind of come out and jump at me and pull me out, and you know? But uh, but he answered, and what was incredible is in the book you get Tony Blair's reaction to uh, to me saying this is what Alan McGee said about you this is what this person said about you and they said you're a war criminal how do you answer Mr Blair and he gives his answer and that was quite incredible yeah. because you know he was so indelibly linked into what was happening you know he'd, he'd been to the Q Awards you came to the Brit Awards um he'd sat through he used to go to gigs and uh it's alan edwards the pr guy that says most politicians turn up for two or three songs then bugger off and he said he sat through like a three hour bowie concert and at the end of the night he remembered the name of like the cleaner he'd been been introduced to four hours earlier to say goodnight to at the end of the evening yeah, you know he yeah, went yeah, to yeah. radio one in those early years and uh and then he invited the cream of of culture to his house when he was Prime Minister, you know, whether as that was Maureen Lippmann or Nick Hornby, or as the photograph remembers fondly, Noel Gallagher.
0: Were you surprised by anything that was said and, and any other kind of comments that were made by the guests that you had on it within the book?
1: Well I think the I think the greatest surprise was was to to discover firstly that Core Britannia happened under the Conservative government, under John Major. He 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 hadn't remembered that. It was pushed by Virginia Botham, who was Heritage Secretary at the time. That was a big thing. Um, And that, it was defined by New York magazines, Newsweek, Vanity Fair. They saw what was happening, as they would say, across the pond. Here in the UK, they saw that this incredible thing was happening. and decided to curate it. And there, and particularly Vanity Fair, who, who gave over half of a, um, a magazine to it, that's where the defining uh, Cool Britannia tag really comes into its own, and that's late '96 and into uh, spring '97. Yeah. So that yeah. was really fascinating because I didn't really. I didn't re- in Birmingham, we didn't really have a sense, I don't think, of Cool Britannia. We barely had a sense of Britpop, to be honest. Mm. But, um, and, and, because you, uh, you, when you're in the heart of being involved in all the music making and the clubs and, and all that, you know, I think things can happen, be going on all around you and you're not really be aware of it. And a lot of people also said the same thing. And it, and, and I'm all so that was definitely a surprise. Yeah, for sure
0: in terms of music or or culture would there be another sort of decade or era that you would like to get your teeth into i mean at the
1: moment to be honest i'm writing a book on the whole on the two-tone record label which is an absolute passion of mine Mm. um and 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 i've already spoken to kind of 70 odd people for that which is pretty much every band member that was ever on the label and and i've just i've actually just finished the book with jill firmanovsky the um photographer when we've done oasis and networth which is coming out in, in august
0: ah, well i was there well one of you? whereabouts of the, what in in the uh, what in the crowd <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i was on a hilly bit but yeah was, yeah in the middle and back quite far back me and my, i me mean and that was amazing that
1: event wasn't it i mean it was the kind of the that was the event of the decade really yeah i I,
0: really, I, I think i for Absolutely. me yeah, I mean, I, I saw them at uh, a very local venue in Southampton where I am and- uh, Joiners. No, unfortunately not, not the joiners, but the uh, they were at the Guildhall. They just- were oh, okay. the yeah. what, Whatever had just come out or was coming out. So it was that and, and that, that, was the, that was the best gig I've ever been to. Looking back for you personally about uh, the 90s and the Britpop and all, all the other sort of subjects called Britannia, the things that you've touched on, what have you taken away from revisiting the decade
1: I mean, it was quite um emotional i guess in a way because it was revisiting my life there was a time of strong relationships uh, i was in a band trying to make it rachel's basement and i was living with simon who was selling a million records and up. and i've been living with steve and then then he was living upstairs and um and so on one there's there's different avenues that were going on i guess one avenue was the thrill of my best friend you know being so successful and enjoying every second of that and the thrill of all of being involved and being around ocean color scene and being involved a lot of things they were doing and whether it was being in the studio with them or just hanging around and parties and being in birmingham or going down to london and or TFI or whatever and then there was my own band and uh gigging and touring and you know we did various dates on Moji Shoals tour and and um the one after and then with other bands that we were playing with at the time uh whether that was smaller or going up to York or wherever else and so there's always the feeling that something might was going to happen but then ultimately didn't so there was and then and then just Reconciling myself with what I was doing personally, I was coming down to London every other weekend, and and getting involved in a lot of the things that were kicking off culturally down here. Mm. Um, and then, I mean, Birmingham in itself, in saying that, had this incredible scene. And so, part of it that was mainly centred around, well, a t- c- couple of three areas. You know, there was what was happening in Mosley where we lived, and around the Jug of Ale, which was like the, one of the greatest pubs that seem to have ever existed, and seeing Oasis play there, supporting Whiteout, and 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 Cas coming, and Cooler Shake turning up and not playing, and and then um and then we had a club, a couple of clubs in town, and one of them Sweat was just uh, had a, had a, a whole total scene um the the took in acid jazz and and 60s soul and the early 70s soul that was so integral to what was happening in the city and then just what you're doing in, with your friendships and personal relationships and at the time so it's, writing a book kind of trips all of those kind of memories and makes me explore it and because of the way I am it made me go back into all my into sometimes I wrote diaries not always but I've got massive archives of things I collected as and and, that, and it was just delving through all of that and, re- and it, it reveals uh, another history and uh, I'm not sure how much of that is it's not literally on in the words on the book but it's within the pages if you like
0: with you being on the inside looking out as well in terms of, of uh, living with with Simon you would have been really obviously absorbing all that all that explosion of, of uh, what was going on at the time as well that must have been a pretty hectic
1: it was amazing the whole that whole journey was just incredible from watching them get on the front page of the of the papers in 89 and then being dropped and then when they spent like a couple of years when they weren't allowed to play live and they just nestled down into a studio in uh, uh, Bob Lund's studio in Kings Heath and just learned how to use a, a desk and then wrote all these tunes like The Whitest Wife in the World, and we're doing Mama Cass covers. And um, and Steve wasn't even really into guitar very much. He was just behind the desk the whole time. were all these lightweight kind of songs, but they were great melodic- melodically. And it was still Simon, it was still Simon's band as it always had been. He was the leader. He was, they were the, they they were, they looked up to Simon because he had the voice and he had the personality. I mean, he was a pop star. Mm. You know, he was eight. You know, he was always a pop star. He was a pop star the day I met him. But then, but then something clicked in Steve. It was quite extraordinary, and he suddenly discovered, rediscovered the mod that he'd always been. That I'd known him as a kid as being a mod. You know, when we not when at junior school, but when like at school and when he was in Deadline and the boys, and he was um and he was just doing. Paul Weller jumps and playing a Rick and Macca bass. And then he suddenly rediscovered that sense of him. And it just whipped, whipped into the band. And they started doing you know these kind of uh, things like get blown away. You know, it started uh, it's the, 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 the original version started way better than the record version. I don't like the record version. That horrible guitar at the beginning. They started like the small faces down 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 down, down like song of a baker, and then it stopped on the decord like, and then Simon came in with the vocal and it was so powerful. It's like wow yeah. But but I suppose by the time they recorded, they thought oh, well we just that's a, that's a steal. We can't do that. But it lost something because of it. But all of that was just sensational. And watching them you know it just felt natural and it was a great really exciting thing to see
0: well i let you go it's been an absolute pleasure uh thanks so much again daniel for, for speaking oh to thanks for having podcast. me on take care for the best Thanks again to Daniel for joining me on the podcast. It was a really fascinating conversation and uh, such a well-put-together book. You can't really put it down once you started, so I really recommend it. There's a link to Daniel's website in the show notes, so you just pop there and you can purchase a copy for yourself. Again, a massive thank you to all of you for your support. Thank you for listening, rating, subscribing, and writing reviews. It's really appreciated. If you haven't done that, please do so. It means so much. And also, you know, on the social media stuff, just search for Back to Britpop on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And there's the Ko-Fi link in the show notes if you want to buy me a virtual coffee. I'll be back next week, all being well, with another episode. So see you soon.